It's kind of an interesting smell um, coming into the hall this evening. Something baking or... (laughs) (laughs) At this, uh, on this day, uh, in the... This time of year, it's this annual tradition. Uh, the staff carving these jack-o'-lanterns. I have so much fun doing it. And it's this real offering um, for your delight and enjoyment. And, and it lightens things up in the hall a bit to have them here. And gives us something to smell also. We don't note smelling that often in here. Occasionally, some really good ones. I think things like this, it's kind of funny that this is the one sort of out of the year, the one thing that gets celebrated here. (laughs) It's been like this since I can remember. But there's something in the lightness of it and the, uh, the joy, having watched the staff carving them over the last days and And this sort of, I don't know, I was thinking about it and thought it was a good reminder in some way, could be a good reminder to us uh, around some some care to not get too serious here. You know, the silence, maybe the fact that when we don't put an expression on our face, especially if you're, you know, getting around my age and gravity is taking its tragic toll, (laughs) it can look kind of down. And, um, you know, it can seem like, wow, this is kind of a drag around here. (laughs) All these bummed out zombies cruising around. (laughs) So some quality of lightness of heart is really essential in in our practice. And we can be lighthearted and not be a lightweight. And we can be sincere and fully committed to what we're doing and yet avoid getting overly serious. The things that help to lighten the heart, mind, really, uh, really important, I think. Once upon a time, Long, long ago, the Bodhisattva, the one who would become the Buddha, was born as the son of the king and queen of Benares. This is when Brahmadatta was the king. And this was a very joyous event for, for the uh, royal family, for the couple. And, uh, and so they had a tradition, they would have a naming day so they waited until a certain time after the, the young prince was born to have a special naming day. And for this day, they decided to invite 800 fortune tellers to come, come to the royal palace. And, um, and they were all offered uh, different kinds of presents, gifts, whatever they might desire to be happy in that moment. And then they were asked to tell the fortune 
of the uh, newborn young prince, and and the it was they wanted to be able to find an an auspicious and appropriate name for the the young baby. And so these fortune tellers they were pretty clever. They had all different methods that they used for uh, for their fortune telling. So some of them were expert at reading uh, the stars and celestial signs and portents and. Um, and they would analyze those and tell the prince's fortune based on uh, the time and day of his birth. And there were others who claimed that they would have the ability, they could trace the prince's former lives. And by seeing all of this, they could then read his future based on his past. Some of them uh, worked in pairs and one of them would enter into a kind of trance and just start spouting all kinds of gibberish and nonsense, and another would interpret it and make predictions and uh, tell the prince's fortune in that way. And so they told the king and queen whatever they they thought they would like to hear, because they wanted to uh, curry favor with the royal family and maybe get some cooler presents. And, And there was one fortune teller, and his expertise was in reading the marks and signs and symbols that he could see on the body of the young baby prince. And he spoke to uh, the king, and he said, My lord, this being is of great merit. He will become king after you. Your son will be highly skilled in the use of five weapons. He will become known as the greatest master of five weapons throughout the land. And so based on this, they named their son Prince Five Weapons. Kind of an interesting name. So the prince was raised in the palace. He had all the finest things, much like the Buddha in that story that the Buddha had from his birth. He was given the very best education. He grew to be very handsome and clever, carried himself around with a regal kind of bearing. His skin was a rich brown color of polished mahogany. He had jet black hair with coppery highlights and just the right amount of curls so that when he tied his turban, a curl would come out here and there. (laughs) He had only the finest clothes made of uh, Benares silk, finest in the land. And this gentle perfume seemed to precede him wherever he went kind of, not quite like the perfume here in the hall. And so when he turned 16, the king decided it was time to send him off to college. Go, my son, to Takasila. There you will find a world-famous teacher. Learn all you can from him and give him this money as payment. And he gave the young prince a thousand gold coins and sent him on his way. So the young prince went to this world-famous teacher in Takasila, and he studied very hard, and very quickly he became the best pupil. And he studied music and calligraphy and different arts. He studied the art of debate and all kinds of martial arts. And he also became skilled with the bow and arrow, with the sword, spear, and war club. And all the time he just grew more handsome and more dashing. His hair got even better. (laughs) And so after some time, and the teacher had taught him all he knew, 
and he'd mastered it. He gave the, the teacher gave the prince a special graduation award of five weapons, special gift. And he also gave him a special outfit that was uh, fine clothing befitting his status as the prince and as his finest, best student. And he sent him uh, to travel along the road home to his uh, the palace in Benares. And as he was traveling along the road, he took, decided to take the scenic route, see a little bit of the, the countryside on his way back. And he came to a village on the edge of a forest. And it was said, there was, uh, the locals uh, said that the forest was haunted by a monstrous, terrible monster. And the villagers warned the prince. They said, Prince Five Weapons, young man, do not go into the forest. Do not go through there. There is a monstrous demon called Sticky Hair living there. <laughs> and he kills everyone he sees. Now, the young prince, having mastered all that he did at college, he was very confident, self-confident, and he felt fearless as a young lion, heart strong and brave, and he was eager to test his mettle and show his prowess. And so he just pushed on into the forest, and he walked along, and he came to a clearing where the dreadful ogre was dwelling. And the monster was as tall as a tree. His head was as big as a house. Kind of looked like an old run-down house. He had huge bloodshot eyes the size of wagon wheels. And one of them went off this direction and one off this direction. Kind of like that pumpkin over there. (laughs) His gaping mouth was full of huge, horrible brown teeth. They were so bucked that he couldn't even close his mouth. And his teeth were so full of holes that vultures and other kinds of scavengers were nesting in the holes in his teeth. He drooled almost constantly, and this horrible, sticky saliva collected in the hair that covered his whole body added to the stickiness of it. His breath was so bad that the young prince thought he might faint. (laughs) He had a huge belly that hung almost to his knees, was covered with white spots, and his hands and feet were this weird mottled blue color and they looked like giant slabs of moldy cheese. (laughs) So the monster roared and growled, and he made other tragic sounds that are too horrible to describe. (laughs) And he said, Where are you going in my forest, little man? You look like a tasty morsel to me. I'm going to gobble you up. Now the prince... He's freshly graduated from college. He'd won the highest award from his teacher. And he thought he knew pretty much everything, and he felt like he could do just about anything. Excuse me for just a moment, said the prince, stepping behind a tree. Quickly, he changed into a special graduation outfit. (laughs) It was a silk sarong of a, a midnight blue so dark it was almost black but not quite. He had a fine tunic. It was woven of lotus threads that had been bleached by moonlight to the color of fresh buffalo cream. He he capped the whole ensemble off with a turban 
incredible dusty rose color, a curl. <laughs> Just here or there. The demon glared at the young prince through his wheel-sized eyes. Why are you dressing up in this fine clothing, he roared. I'm just going to eat you, and I'm going to eat your clothes as well. Oh, well, said the prince. Might as well go out in style. Besides, oh, fierce demon, I am Prince Five Weapons, and I have come on purpose to find you. I dare you to attack me. I will kill you easily with my first two weapons, my bow and poison-tipped arrows. Now the bow that Prince Five Weapons had received from his teacher, this was no ordinary bow. It was made cunningly out of 54 interlocking pieces. And when it was assembled, it was stronger, more flexible, more powerful than any other bow. The prince tossed it into the air. And it assembled itself <laughs> as if by magic. Like one of those, those tent poles with the shock cord in them. <laughs> Fitting one of his poison-tipped arrows to the bow, he drew back with his mighty strength, shot it straight at the monster. But the arrow just stuck to the sticky hair like glue. Didn't go anywhere didn't penetrate at all. Then he shot one after another, the rest, all 49 of the rest of his 50 poison-tipped arrows, like uh, those elves in the Lord of the Rings. It was like a blur of motion. You could hardly see him moving, one after the other. They all just stuck fast to the sticky-haired monster's matted coat. And then the monster shook his body from his house-sized head to his blue feet. And the arrows just fell off and clattered to the ground like so many toothpicks. Prince Five Weapons watched all of his arrows fall to the ground. This might be a bit trickier than I thought, he mused. So he drew his third weapon. It was a 33-inch long sword. A blade of polished Damascus steel hand-beaten of 1,500 layers. The blade was of the finest horn inlaid with precious stones. He drew his sword and lunging, he jabbed it into the sticky-haired monster and it just stuck in the matted hair. He watched his beautiful sword hang there and then slowly disappear as though the hair were eating it. Well, he thought, I still have two weapons left, and they are more powerful than these first three. So then he hefted his fourth weapon, his spear. Again, no ordinary spear. Carved along its length, it had powerful magical symbols. The tip of it was of pure silver, and it was honed to a razor-sharp edge. Stepping back, he lunged forward with all of his strength and launched his spear with enough force to split a tree. But it just stuck to the monster's hair and it just hung there like a toy. Was that a bee trying to sting me, raged the giant. And reaching down, he plucked the spear from his hair and began using it to pick his teeth and dislodged a sleeping mongoose who was nesting in one of the holes. 
Undaunted, the prince attacked with the last of his five weapons, his war club. It was fashioned out of an iron-hard burl of teak and studded all over with shark teeth. Once again, the monster's sticky mat of thick hair protected him. Didn't even feel it. This is all getting rather tiresome, roared the monster. The prince yelled, Hey, you, sticky-haired monster, haven't you ever heard of me? I'm Prince Five Weapons. I have more than just these five weapons. I have the strength of my young man's body. I will break you into little pieces. Now, while he'd been at college, the young prince had mastered many martial arts, as I mentioned. He'd perfected karate punches to the point where he could break stacks of bricks. Kung Fu kicks that would break down a wall of solid stone. Giving a mighty yell, he hit Sticky Hair with his right fist, a blow that would usually have felled an ox. His hand just stuck to the hairy coat. He hit the demon with his left fist, and this too stuck to the gooey mass of hair. Undaunted, he aimed a Kung Fu kick with his right foot at the monster's belly, followed immediately by a roundhouse left, just like a martial arts master. Both feet stuck exactly like his fists, leaving him just dangling there. (laughs) Finally, he butted the sticky-haired demon as hard as he could with his head, using a Taekwondo move that he perfected at college. Lo and behold, his head got stuck. So he's hanging there. Both feet, both hands, his head. Even while he's sticking to the hairy monster in these five places, dangling down from his sticky coat, the prince had no fear. Sticky-haired monster thought, this is very strange indeed. This prince is more like a lion than a normal person. Even while in the grasp of a ferocious monster like me, he does not tremble with fear. In all the time I've been killing and eating people in this forest, I've never met anyone like this prince. Why isn't he afraid of me? And since the prince five weapons was so unusual, not like his usual victims, the sticky hair was afraid to eat him right away. Instead he asked, young man, why aren't you afraid of death? The prince replied, why should I be afraid of death? There is no doubt that anyone who is born will ultimately come to death. Then Prince Five Weapons thought, "Mm, these five weapons, however powerful they've been, that were given to me by my world-famous teacher, they've really been useless. Even the lion-like strength of my young man's body has been useless. I must go beyond my teacher, beyond my body, to the weapon inside my mind, the only weapon I really need. The prince continued and spoke to the sticky-haired monster. There's one small detail, O monstrous one, I haven't told you about yet. My bow and arrow were actually just a single weapon. I have only used the first four. In my belly is my secret weapon, a diamond weapon that you cannot digest. 
It will cut your intestines into pieces if you are foolish enough to swallow me. So if I die, you die. That's why I'm not afraid of you. In this way, the prince used his greatest weapon, his intelligence, and he used it in a simple way that Sticky Hair could easily understand. He knew this greatest of all weapons, his mind, was a precious diamond gem, power far greater than anything else. Sticky Hair thought, no doubt this fearless person is telling me the truth, and even if I eat as much as a pea-sized tidbit of such a hero, I probably won't be able to digest it. I better let him go. And so, fearing his own death, he sent, set Prince Five, weapons, or Prince Five Weapons free. Waxing poetic, he said, You are a great man. I will not eat your flesh. I let you go free, just like the moon that reappears after an eclipse, so that you may shine pleasantly on all your friends and relatives. Nice imagery, admitted the prince. <laughs> Thanks, said Sticky Hair, who'd always nursed a secret desire to be a poet. The young prince, the bodhisattva, had learned from his battle. He had learned that the only true weapon is found inside, that the weapons of the outside world are limited, and that his true strength could be found only by turning inward. The diamond weapon of his mind brought the understanding that kindness is also a true and great protection, that awareness infused with kindness is perhaps the greatest protection of all. And out of gratitude, he decided to teach the unfortunate demon. Oh, sticky hair, this life you're living as a murderous demon is not leading anywhere. If you continue in this way, you will, you will only go from darkness to more darkness. Now that you have spared me, you have seen that there is another way. It is never too late to make a change, and I can show you a new way to live. So Prince Five Weapons continued to teach Sticky Hair, and eventually the monster agreed to follow the five precepts. <laughs> he also agreed to take a bath, start a program of dental hygiene, get some help with personal grooming, and add leafy greens to his diet. After bathing, Sticky Hair began to lose some of his stickiness. He started flossing his teeth and evicted all of the different creatures that were living there. And the prince also encouraged Sticky's interest in poetry. After some time, Prince Five Weapons decided to visit the villagers nearby, and to, he convinced them that Sticky Hair had changed his ways and was no longer the monster that they feared. And a few brave souls decided to go and see for themselves. They came to the demon's lair and found him reclining in the shade by the side of a stream, reading a book of poetry with the prince. His mat of sticky hair had been washed and brushed to a silky softness. His teeth were clean, and he smelled of rose water and sandalwood. <laughs> Over time, the village children became especially friendly with sticky hair. They wove his no longer sticky hair into braids. They made flower garlands for him to wear, and they nicknamed him Sticky for short. In return, Sticky would give the children piggyback rides 
and he would help them pick mangoes and other fruit that grew high in the treetops. Sticky befriended the animals of the forest as well and also began to find ease and comfort and friendship in, uh, with plants and trees of the forest. And he and the prince continued their friendship. After a time, the local villagers were won over and they started bringing food offerings for him on a regular basis. So after some time, Prince Five Weapons decided that he really should return to Benares, back to the palace and his family. And Sticky was sad at first because the prince was his, his first and greatest friend. The children are your friends, said the prince, and so are the trees and the animals. But the prince also promised that he would return to visit when he could. So the prince returned to Benares, and in time uh, he became king, following in his father's place. But he always honored his promise to visit his friend, and made annual visits to Sticky's Grove, as it became known. Each time he came, he brought a new book of poetry as a gift. And over time, King Five Weapons noticed changes in Sticky's appearance. He began slowly to resemble the trees of the forest more and more. His mat of hair became finer and finer until it was like fine strands of tree moss. And his skin began to take on the appearance of smooth bark. King Five Weapons talked to Sticky about some of these changes. You were right about trees being my friends, said Sticky. The trees have a lot to say if you take the time to listen. The trees have been teaching me about patience, that things happen in their own time and season, that there are natural rhythms to life's unfoldings. The trees have taught me about the power of selfless giving. They offer shade and shelter and the fruit that they bear, and they ask for nothing in return. And then in turn, they receive the gift that the rain brings and the gifts of sunshine and starlight and the friendship of birds. And so in this way, Sticky began to change internally and externally. He transformed from a monster into a friendly forest deva. And his forest became famous as a place of peace and safety, Sticky's Grove. Wandering mendicants and seekers would come through they would take up residence there for a time to meditate at the base of the great trees, finding shelter uh, among the roots there. And these wanderers were welcomed and cared for by Sticky and the nearby villagers. And King Five Weapons issued a proclamation stating that Sticky's Grove was protected, would be a sanctuary, would be a haven for all who came in peace and that no trees should be cut there, no animals should be hunted there. As the end of his life approached, King Five Weapons made one last trip to the forest to visit his friend. And along with one of his ministers, he journeyed to the now famous grove. He walked very slowly now. He was bent over using a stick for support and his once jet black hair had turned mostly gray, but still had its nice curls, one or two, sneaking out from under his turban. When he came to Sticky's forest glade, he looked around, and instead of finding his friend, 
just a beautiful tree filled the forest glade. It was filled with singing birds and animals played and uh, rested in the shade underneath it. King Five Weapons rested from his journey under the great tree. He delighted in the cool shade and the lovely bird song that filled the air. After a while, the minister who had come with him said, Your Majesty, perhaps it is time that we return to the palace. But the king felt so happy and peaceful in the shade of the tree that he said, No, let's stay a little longer. There's no rush to get home. And so one day turned to two, two days to three, until finally the king decided, I think I'll just stay here in the forest. I think I'll rest here in the shelter of this great tree. And so he stayed there and he passed his final days in peaceful contemplation in Sticky's Grove. The end. <laughs> so in this story, this is a slightly embellished Jataka tale. <laughs> Prince Five Weapons, he had so much confidence at first, but initially at least, was somewhat misplaced, some of his confidence. He placed his trust in, in uh, external conditions in a certain sense, you could say, in these five weapons. And they were powerful, but they proved ineffectual against this sticky-haired monster. They didn't work. This, this uh, quality, you could say, the, the issue of confidence, of trust, what we might call faith, we use the word faith in this tradition, not faith that is born of belief, but faith in this, in this sense of trust, of confidence. This is really a key, really key in our practice, finding a place to of real confidence, a place that's really trustworthy. This quality of faith, the Pali word for it is sadda. It's said to, uh, to plant the seed, to be the very seed of all wholesome states. It's said that this is true because it inspires the mind and heart with enough confidence and determination to set out into what uh, is often very unknown terrain. In one of the texts, there's this image that said it, it, it gives us the confidence to launch out into the unknown, to cross the flood of samsara. For this kind of confidence, faith in this sense, sadha, to arise, and to become a strong enough energy, a strong enough force, power in our lives that it's actually capable of inspiring and um, energizing this kind of leap into 
the unknown, this movement away from everything we may know from conventions. It needs something to draw upon for strength and courage. It needs a basis, a a firm foundation. We need to encounter something that actually feels trustworthy. Otherwise, we might have, have a kind of blind faith that's just a belief or a hope. And what can serve as a basis for this kind of confidence and trust? What actually would give us enough uh, sense of strength and, and a feeling of, of enough sense of possibility that we could set out in this way to actually decide, let me look and see for myself enough confidence, strength of heart to face our doubts, to actually explore them. From what we might say is the Buddhist perspective, this faith is directly directly related to uh, the three objects of refuge in what we call the triple gem. We've spoken about this, the gem of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And the faith, as I said, that we would place in this, in the triple gem, it's not a blind faith. It's not an uncritical kind of thing. There may initially be a kind of, um, a kind of consent that we make, a determination there that's born of our willingness to actually take a look and see. But there also must be a kind of, uh, of a real sort of critical scrutiny. Look and see for ourselves, make it real, an exploration, so that this confidence, this kind of faith can become reliable in a very personal and very practical way so that it's real and not just a nice idea or not someone else's confidence. So it becomes ours. As I said, this word uh, in Pali, sadha, really often uh, gets translated as faith. It literally means that which supports or upholds this quality of confidence or trust. And it's described in one place as a hand that reaches out and takes hold of that which is useful and profitable and helpful. Sharon Salzberg um, has, has a beautiful way, an image that she likes to use for this. She equates this uh, quality um, with a sense of, of it's, a, it's a, a reliable place where we can safely place our heart, something that we can place our heart upon. It's like a kind of true refuge. And when we think of it in this terms, in terms of the refuge in the triple gem, it has that quality, a place of like a really safe harbor, a real refuge. And we could look at this in different ways, but a simple, powerful way to think of refuge in terms of this triple gem might be to see refuge in Buddha as refuge in wakefulness refuge in Dhamma, as a refuge in the truth of things, in the law of nature, in the true nature of things, you could say. 
and in Sangha, in the power of our shared intention together and our potential, each of us individually, for realization. There's a story from the time of the Buddha said that after his enlightenment, he was, he had, uh, when he had decided to travel to, uh, to, uh, to find his, his first five, uh, five um, ascetics who had been practicing with him in the story I told last week, he decided to leave uh, the, the tree there on the banks of the Naranjara River in there in what is now Bodh Gaya, and he would travel to Sarnath to the deer park there and offer teachings. And, um, and he's, he's newly enlightened, you know, looks kind of like Prince Five Weapons, glowing skin. Maybe had that coppery glint to his hair, I don't know. But he, uh, he had a, a very radiant look in the description there. He stood out and he encountered someone along the road and uh, the person was so taken by his appearance and his, uh, his demeanor as he moved along that he, he said, he, he, he wondered, he's, he went to him and he, he said, are you, are you human? Are you a god? What are you? And it said that the Buddha replied very simply, I am awake. That's all he said. I am awake. And the, the root of this word Buddha, which is the same uh, root for a Bodhi tree, the tree under which he was enlightened is called the Bodhi tree. The root of that word means uh, awake. So a Buddhist is an awakest. We can all be awakists. So this is a, a reliable kind of refuge, you could say, this quality of wake, wakefulness. It can serve as a, as a refuge and a basis for this kind of faith because in any moment we could wake up. We do wake up. That is possible anytime. We can always wake up. We can know it's like this now. And so what do we wake up to? We wake up to the Dhamma, to the truth of things, to the way it is right now, to the way things really are. And this can be a refuge because this uh, is independent of changing conditions. It doesn't matter how it is. We know it's like this. Refuge in Dhamma, in this way, lets us take our stand. We stand on reality. That's a powerful thing, to stand on reality, on the truth of things. We rest in the truth of the way things really are, rather than desperately clinging to our ideas about how it should be. And then we can also find refuge in the third of the part of the triple gem, in Sangha, in the power of our shared intention, when we come together in a group like this, and in uh, our individual possibility, potential for realization. The Buddha, maybe one of my colleagues spoke to this, and the Buddha said, if this were not possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. But it is possible. And so I do ask you, And we start to see the ways that our own understanding um, 
really lines up with what we've been taught, what we've heard. We see that we're walking the same path as the Buddha and his followers walked. We have a mind and a body and a heart. That's what they had. We're exploring the same things, what it is to be human, the nature of mind and body. That is no different now than it ever was, than it ever will be. What they realized is possible for us. And so through this refuge in this, in this intention, aspiration, this heart orientation around wisdom, love, understanding, kindness, then our focus starts to shift in a way. It shifts towards um, things that are more timeless and more universal, that are universal to all of us. We drop below the surface of things and we place our trust in something that is more dependable than our individual stories and our conditioned habits. When Prince Five Weapons in the story placed his trust in these external conditions, he turned to something that wasn't always going to be reliable, didn't work. But when he turned to his own inner wisdom, his intelligence, the power of his awareness, then he found this flexibility in that to respond to the situation. He could draw on his inner resources. His wisdom arose naturally. He responded effectively and found a way to uh, transform the situation. So our willingness, if we can open to directly touch the truth of the moment, this enables to find a kind of true, really, really practical, useful refuge. We find it in this simple capacity that we all have to meet our life with this quality of mindful awareness. We can meet each moment in this way. And we start to see that we can really trust this, this kind of awareness. We see that it has a power because it is not changed or affected by what it knows, what is known. We see that the awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness of fear is not afraid. We see that this, this power of mind can ultimately, it can hold anything and everything that arises. It can become that big, that strong. And this is really empowering personally for each one of us because then we're not having to place our trust or confidence in external things. Our source of safety and strength is something we find in our own mind and heart. And we know it for ourselves. It's not anyone else's. We each find it for ourselves. We find we can rest really in the truth of things in the conditions as they are. And there's a deep source of ease and confidence that is, is resilient and flexible and yet has a firmness there. Something, uh, a really safe place where we can rest our heart in this beautiful image. It's a kind of deep inner strength that also opens us to a kind of um, abiding contentment a kind of contentment that is not dependent on the conditions in the world around us. 
not shaken by change, not buffeted about by the winds of change. It rides that, it flows with that. It's like riding the waves. So I'll finish this evening with a few words from uh, <clears throat> a monk in the Thai forest tradition named Ajahn Fuang Jotiko. It's from a small book called Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away, and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows naturally, clearly, and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. Now we can just keep sitting for a minute or two quietly together.
thank you for your kind attention once again. And uh, we have about uh, 40 minutes now for some walking meditation. And uh, if you have the energy, please return for the chanting. We're chanting uh, the Metta Sutta now in, in Pali and English. And it's quite a lovely way to end the day. So please be welcome for that. See you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.